With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. I am Lucia Matuonto, and welcome to the Relatable Voice podcast, a talk show where my guests and I talk about relatable everyday situations, books, and the environment we live in. Remember to subscribe and follow the podcast on social media so you can be notified when a new episode is available. Let's begin. On this episode on the RV, we are making a stop in Venice, California to speak with Brian Finney. Brian is a literature professor and has published seven non-fiction books and two novels. He's here to talk about his latest book, Dangerous Conjectures. So Brian, welcome to The Relatable Voice. Thank you for, for having me there. Yes, of course. I'm very happy to have you here today. And Brian, you moved to California in 1987 from the UK. And I'm curious to know, what do you miss most about living in London? Well, it's, it's such a different city from Los Angeles. Um, it, for a start, it has wonderful pubs. And secondly, um, only New York rivals it for theater. Um, and I love the ease of getting around London, like, I mean, like other cities, like, shall we say, Paris or New York, it, but unlike Los Angeles, which has got a terrible public transport system and you're always in your car in a traffic jam here. <laughs> but I do like Los Angeles. I mean, I, I, I love the, the climate, I love the culture. Um, so, you know, they, they are both great experiences. Yes, I believe so. I've never been to California, but I know that the, the weather there is almost perfect. Yeah, it is, it is wonderful. I feel very privileged to be allowed to live there. And also you have amazing beaches. So, do, do, yeah. yeah, and Hollywood. Huge, huge, you know, extensive sand, sandy beaches, yes. Mm-hmm. Very interesting and very beautiful. Maybe one day I'll visit it. Oh, I hope and, you do. Yes. And Brian, <laughs> you've been a professor for a very long time. And what made you decide to work with English literature? Um, well, <laughs> I mean, it is my culture. Uh, I, you know, I was brought up there and of course I was brought up with, you know, literature, English literature in particular, being a sort of major component of what they weren't, at the time I was at school, they weren't very good at teaching um, international literature and translation. They tended to privilege it. I, since I have grown up and become an adult and choose for myself, I've obviously, you know, acquainted myself with a huge amount of international literature and it's just, it's just as good, but 
I was, if you like, you know, conditioned by my school days into privileging it. And of course, it's an amazingly varied and powerful body of work when you go back to Chaucer or Shakespeare and you come forward to, you know, Ian McEwan or David Mitchell or what have you. So, um, yes, you know, I don't ever regret um, focusing on, on British literature, but I have since, particularly since coming to the United States midway through my life, I have extended my repertoire considerably and have written about non-British non literature as well. Mm -hmm. And is there any author that inspired you? Well, sure. I, you know, I started off uh, doing a, a PhD thesis on D.H. Lawrence. And Lawrence is, a, I mean, he was an amazingly prolific writer, considering that he died at the age of 45. Uh, you know, I mean, he didn't just write novels and, and he's a great poet, but he wrote a huge number of travel essays. He wrote philosophical essays and philosophical theses even. He did, he did everything you could imagine and plays even. Um, but what I really, what really attracted me to his work was his sort of outlook on life. Uh, he was very skeptical about the rise of modern civilization, the rise of capitalism, the rise of industrialism. He, he, he saw the harm it was doing coming from himself, a very small uh, mining community, a little village where, you know, he looks out of the window and it's countryside. Um, and, you know, he, he saw the difference between that and living in a city. Um, and also he was alienated very, very early on by uh, English, the English government who accused him of spying incorrectly. And mm -hmm. So he himself was also very international and He's a passionate writer. He, 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 believes, he believes in feeling and he thinks that the modern world has, uh, if you like, uh, limited or, or almost repressed feeling at, at the expense of thought, thinking things through. So that, that really appealed to me. And then um, more after that, I would list Samuel Beckett as my next most favorite author. I mean, I think he, he's amazingly brave the way he refuses to flinch from looking at what he sees as the pointlessness of life. I mean, he keeps on referring to Le Neant and he sees, he sees art, he sees philosophy, he sees love as distractions, if you like, distractions that we readily grasp in order to avoid looking at that, um, what shall I say, chilling reality of things. So, uh, and also, I mean, he gradually developed a style, particularly by writing in French first and then translating his French writings into English, um, that was extremely pared down, um, tremendously uh, powerful because of what it leaves out. Uh, and, you know, in his writing, for example, the silences are very important because that's when, you know, the nothingness can seep through and the reader can be aware of what he's talking about. So he's great too. Yeah, and I saw Waiting for Godot in the theater a long time ago, and like Godot never arrived. <laughs> so, but I, I remember I was very young, but I remember to have enjoyed it a lot. Some critics said about Godot that um, it's about, um, how did this say, uh, about uh, Godot's non arrival twice. <laughs> Nothing yeah. happens twice, he says. <laughs> That's true, exactly. And what is your uh, favorite 
think about being a professor? What do I think about being a professor? Well, I enjoyed it. I mean, I was, you know, I was a professor for a long time. No, not all my life. I mean, I started off, you know, administratively um, uh, in industry, and then I transferred to uh, what we call extension uh, university classes here, which is, you know, where you hire university professors to talk to the general public about this, that, or the other. And I, I, I did that in London for quite a long time, where, uh, you know, I was covering all the arts and would work with the British Film Institute or the Institute of Contemporary Art or whatever it happened to be. Um, and I, that was fun. But gradually, I moved over to becoming more and more full-time teacher. And then uh, uh, during Thatcher's decade, I landed up with her um, instituting very severe cuts in my area of education, which by then I was like a semi-chair of the department. And I was I thought to myself, what am I doing? All I'm doing is, you know, executing policies that I don't believe in. So that was when I immigrated to America, where I could be full time professor without any interruption, so to speak. And I had to start again um, and work my way through the American system. And I finished up um, at a, a local state university here, California State University, Long Beach, where I'm a professor emeritus now, I'm no longer teaching full time. Yeah, was a big move. Yeah, it was, it was a huge move. Yes, but um, and in fact, I moved without a job um, until I, I I packed up my flat in London. Everything was uh, in boxes. The telephone was about to be disconnected when it rang. And the chair of the English department at University of California, Riverside, rang up and said, the person we offered the job to uh, has already taken another job and you were next on the list. Would you like it? So I had, I had, I landed very softly for the first two years. That's what I call that was amazing. <laughs> I was even being paid before I got there. So that was, that was marvelous. <laughs> Brian, your latest book, Dangerous Conjectures, takes place during a pandemic. You've also written several non-fiction books, including Terrorized, How the War on Terror Affected American Culture and Society. Do you think of your books as political commentary? Well, not really, except for the one you mentioned. Terrorized was political commentary, although it was, it was more social than, it was at least as much social as political. And, you know, I mean, it, it, what it argued was basically that um, the you know, 9-11 altered forever American society and it brought out, it, you know, it's, it's paranoia and it, it's, you know, revenge became respectable. All kinds of changes occurred. You know, even torture was, was indulged for, for a while by the government. Um, so, um, yes and no. As far as fiction is concerned, <laughs> I, de I don't um, consider those two works of fiction, Money Matters and Dangerous Conjectures, as political commentary. But I do consider the political and social background as very important in that, you know, characters, the individuals on whom the, the two books concentrate um, don't exist in a vacuum. Uh, and in fact, I make them have some interactions with um, some aspect of, of the politics of the time. Uh, in Money Matters, I made them uh, interact with the, the governor's, uh, the governor of California's election. And in Dangerous Conjectures, uh, Adam, my, the, the male major character, investigates 
QAnon, which turns out to have uh, suspiciously close links to the White House, for example. So, you know, they are there, but they're not in the foreground, they're in the background. Mm, very interesting. And Brian, could you tell us a little bit more about dangerous conjectures? Well, you know, it, it um, focuses on Adam and Julia, who are like in their 30s, they're both professionals. Uh, they live in the East Bay, Bay area. Uh, and he teaches at the University of California, Berkeley. Uh, he's a professor of computer science. Um, and she works for the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union um, uh, in San Francisco. And they have a nine-year-old daughter called Liz. Um, and, you know, from being, what shall I say, a, a, a traditionally, you know, satisfied young professional family, things start happening. He's, he, he, he gets involved with QAnon, which is a ridiculous conspiracy theory that, I mean, quite absurd, you know, satanic, he believes in a that there's a satanic cult of pedophiles who are mainly Democrats who are, who are that constitute the deep state uh, and really govern the country. You know. And uh, he thinks this is so ridiculous. How can people, how can so many people believe in it? And so he starts investigating it. And, um, and this is where the fictional part comes in. He, he begins to find there are links between QAnon and the government. Government, where I mean, I never mentioned the name of the president, but the president is clearly very similar to the actual President Trump at the time. Um, meantime, Julia um, is terrified by the rise of the the early rise of the virus because if you remember, it first we may, may not it first manifested itself in California, in Northern California, where they live. I remember. Um, right. So um, she takes this really seriously. He um, tends to say, oh, you know, it's not, you need to keep it in proportion. Her fear of what it amounts to, which is a fear of death, causes her to make some rash decisions of one sort or another. Um, among, I mean, first of all, she starts listening to these conspiracy theories, which drives him crazy. And not QAnon, but the other ones, you know, like uh, there are 5G towers being put up, you know, that are going to affect everybody's minds and so on. Exactly. And um, so, uh, you know, she also agrees to see an old date of hers who turns out to be extremely violent and who she thinks that by pacifying him, she will in fact, um, you know, uh, quiet him down. And all it does is to arouse his appetite for more and he turns into a stalker that stalks the entire family. So, you know, that adds to her terror, um, as does the political situation, which they keep on hearing in the news flashes that they tune into, um, because it, this is the primary election season in America. And the, uh, the primary is getting increasingly violent, just as Dave, the stalker, gets increasingly violent. Um, and so, the entire novel uh, builds to a kind of crescendo, which I won't give away, um, where all of these factors threaten the, the marriage. Um, and interestingly, um, the, even, even Julia's life um, 
could have uh, is is saved by her daughter's uh, quick thinking. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Mm. So I have my book that you gave me and I'm looking forward to reading it. And I know that the pandemic clearly inspired you with with this book. And my question for you is, do you always use like personal experience as inspiration for your book ideas? Um, Again, the, the, the answer is ambivalent because of course you do draw on your experience to some extent. And in particular, Adam, you know, he's a professor, I'm a professor. We might teach different subjects, but we know, you know, we, we confront the same issues in a sense. Uh, in, in particular, he's, he's accused at one point by a student of, uh, you know, improper sexual advances, which never occurred. And that's a danger that every professor in, you know, in the university system stands. On the other hand, um, a character like Dave is completely unlike me. I mean, you know, he's violent and aggressive. Um, and I have to actually put myself into his mind, his psyche, and uh, allow myself to write out what it would be like to be him. Uh, so that's an entirely an act of imagination. It's not an, not an act of experience. I don't think I've really met somebody like that in, in intimately. I mean, I, of course, I live here in Venice and there are, you know, there are violent episodes going on all the time at the moment with the homeless situation being what it is. But um, no, and the same with Julia too. I mean, Ju- Julia's fear of the spread of the pandemic does not uh, reflect mine. Uh, I, if anything, I tended to underplay it rather than overplay it, and that's just my how I am. Uh, so again, I needed an I needed to project myself into how she would feel. And in particular, when you start writing dialogue, that becomes easier, you know, because the, the, what one person says triggers what the next person says, and it's easy to see how uh, evolves, so to speak. Yeah, this interaction is, yeah. Yeah, is good when you have to get some ideas. Who do you ask yeah, to read over your drafts and share their feedback? Um, well, for the novels, I have always asked a professional editor to do a line edit. And just to give you some idea, I mean, this this book I wrote uh, as a section per day, starting on, I forget when, the 24th of January, whenever it was, or a little earlier, and ending on the 13th of March. And 
I alternated, mainly alternated between Adam um, being the speaker of the first person speaker of one section and then Julia being the first person speaker of the next section. And I had the date on the top of each section. And my line editor said to me, it reads like a diary. It sounds like a, you know, two people's diaries. And so I said, all right, I'll try seeing what it's like in the third person. So I, I instead of, you know, I did this or other, Adam, you know, did that. Uh, I turned the whole thing into the third person. Uh, so there was no longer a distinction between the two narrators. There was only one impersonal narrator, but it still had, what shall I say, it had the directness of that original writing of, of the person speaking as an I. Um, so it, it, I thought that that was a really good suggestion on her part and, and it really pulled the, the novel together. We took the dates out as well. Um, and gen generally, um, it, you know, transformed it into something that was different and yet uh, retained some of the force of the, of the original. Apart from that, you can tell by listening to me talking that I have an English accent still. I've lived in the, in the United States for over 30 years and I still, you know, everybody immediately knows that I'm, I'm English when I'm on the phone, say. Um, and I can't, you know, you can't get rid of that. Particularly if you, if you move somewhere in the middle of your life, uh, you still maintain that, that way of speaking. Well, both of my characters are Americans and so was the, the major character in Money Matters. So I had to get endless friends and you know, friends and uh, relatives and uh, fellow writers to read through the, the draft and rid me, and my wife too, uh, rid me of um, all the Anglican expressions. And it's amazing how each of them managed to, to find some but missed others. So it took a lot, of, a lot of people to actually get rid of it all and make it sound totally convincingly America. Yeah, that is interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, I, it, well, I'll, when I get to tell you about you know, the possible next book, that, that will be, that will have as a, as a major character, someone who is Anglo-American. So I don't have that problem. <laughs> it will be easier for sure. <laughs> it's a very simple way out of it. <sighs> And uh, Ryan, are you having feedback from your readers? It's, it's difficult because a lot of the people who I've had feedback from are friends. And, you know, friends are not going to be uncomplimentary. But some of them have been very, very enthusiastic and, you know, said loved, loved, loved the book, etc. Mm -hmm. And I, from what I can gather from them, it, it is, particularly after the, first, after the opening section, it becomes a page turner. Uh, they said they, they couldn't put it down. So that aspect I'm, I'm pleased with. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I haven't had much, I mean, I had, I had, for example, a very good Kirkus review, um, which is tremendously helpful for, you know, making the book more widely known. Um, and that, that was good. Uh, but otherwise I haven't had much from, uh, what should I say, the, the reading public at large, I don't know yet. What do think? It takes a while. It takes a while, but yeah, yeah. And because I asked you about the reviews or the feedback, I want to know. I would like to know how do you handle negative criticism? 
Well, you know, there's the, the different kinds of negative criticism. Some negative criticism is, you know, from the kind of critic who who wants to write the book themselves, who you know, who who wants the book to be something other than it is, and I ignore that. But other negative criticism can be extremely helpful. On I actually gave you one instance where the line the line editor, um, you know, radically altered the you know the the, the nature of of the book. Uh, writing out at least the nature of the narration, not not the content so much, but the way in which it is narrated, which of course is very important. Um, so you know, I, I welcome useful negative uh, criticism. And two of my friends and relatives who read it early on said that um, when we get to the reconciliation between Adam and Julia near the end, I made it uh, much too. Um, easy. It happened. You know, it, it it wasn't very lifelike, um, and I completely rewrote that and rethought it and made it much more irrational and much more violent and <laughs> and much more difficult to reach. So that, that was a helpful negative negative response, for example. Yeah, in the beginning, we we always rely on family and friends. How is your writing process, prior? I don't think I'm very typical of that. I mean, I'm typical in that I do some kind of brief, rough outline. I, I need to know, you know, what the overall form or shape of, of the book is going to be and how, where it's going to, so to speak. Um, but apart from that, once I start writing, um, I, I, the outline is very secondary to what's happening. And if the characters uh, in their dialogue and in their actions, require something or other to happen that's not in the outline, they win out every time. The outline gets gets pushed pushed aside. Um, because really, you know, you find when you're when you're writing that if the characters have any real life in them, um, they only certain they can only do certain things, they can only say things a certain way. And it's no good trying to force your opinions through them onto the reader. You've got to allow them to tell you how they think and how they act. So, um, I, I, I mean, apart from that, I, I'm not one of those readers who gets up at seven in the morning and locks the door and, you know, writes for so many hours. I think I write when I feel like it because I enjoy writing. It's, it's, it's a pleasure. I don't, I don't worry about, you know, having writer's block. I don't worry about, you know, not being able to write that day. If I don't feel like writing that day, I just don't write that day. I wait till I do feel like it, which is most days. <laughs> yeah, and it's interesting because you said you don't experience writer's block. No, I, I, I haven't. Uh, and interestingly, one of, the, one of my fellow writers who gave me a very uh, helpful critique of the book uh, said that all the whole of the year of the pandemic, she couldn't write a thing. The only thing she could do was a blog. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because I know many people who started writing during the pandemic. I was one of them, and I sometimes experience writer's block. When it happens, I just go for a walk or I do some dynamic meditation, and then I can go back and start writing again. Well, it was a perfect opportunity in some ways. It, you know, as long as you weren't psychologically, as Julia was in the book, you know, totally put off by the entire pandemic. 
I think Julia was more stressed than I. I in the beginning, I was very, really, really scared. But then, yeah, we had nothing to do, just accept and try to not to catch this virus. I understand. Yeah. Yeah. And Raya, please tell our listeners what is next for you. Well, I'm struggling with what's next to me. I, I have an idea, but I, I haven't yet worked my way inside the characters. But, you know, as you see with the other two novels, I, I, take a, I, I like to take a particular political and social situational climate and then situate the characters within that. And then, and then, of course, the characters come first, but nevertheless, there it is, that political background that they're, if you like, uh, contributing to and interacting with. Well, to me, at the moment, much the most serious problem issue facing our age is that of income disparity. I mean, it's got worse and worse. In the United States, it's got ridiculous. I mean, absolutely absurd. And so I would love to write a book that, um, if you like, uh, made that uh, the, the, the issue between two characters, one who is from the 0.1%, if you like, and one who whom is way down in the bottom 10% or something. And I thought, how interesting it would be if I could have, shall we say, a middle-aged homeless woman uh, living in a van who parks the van outside the house of um, a, um, um, you know, a kind of merchant banker, um, and somebody who is very, very rich and has never really had, you know, had to think about money at all. And, you know, he's very threatened. She can see him coming in and out of his house. He doesn't like this. He tries to get rid of her. He tries to get the, the uh, what should I say, the, go- the local government to get rid of her. She won't go. And then eventually something happens. I don't know what, the van goes on, goes up and fire, fire or something. He has to take her in. And then you have this slow meeting of, you know, the two extremes neither of whom can even imagine the way the other person has lived until now. Right, I can imagine this conversation, the initial conversation that they can have. Exactly. The initial one can be a little bit stressful, yeah? No, absolutely, yes. There would be a lot of misunderstanding too, yeah. Mm -hmm. Write this book. (laughs) Well, I I hope it comes alive. (laughs) And Brian, where can our listeners find you and your books? And please tell us also about your uh, tell us about your website, social media, please. Okay. Well, um, they, if they go to Amazon.com, um, they will find both Dangerous Conjectures and Money Matters, that, and both of the, those books are available. As you know, an ebook, a paperback, and an audiobook. Um, my website is very easy to get to because it's simply B for Brian, B H Finney, my name, at bhfinney.com. So it's a simple one to remember, bhfinney at bhfinney.com. My main media outlet is Instagram. I, I mean, I prefer Instagram, put it that way. And although I do post on Twitter, I, I'm not very comfortable on Twitter, whereas I feel I really like the audience and the interaction on Instagram, and I interact with a lot of my friends there. Mm-hmm. That That is Brian Finney Writer. Okay. Uh, is, the, is that hashtag. 
Wonderful. And Brian, Brian you please go. Brian Finney Writer. Brian Finney Writer. Brian Finney Writer. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And Brian was, I wish we could speak for more, for one more hour, one hour. <laughs> It's always fun talking to you. <laughs> yeah, it's very nice. So please come back with this next book and I will be writing a review about your book as soon as I finish it. Oh, good. Well, I, hope you, I hope you enjoy it. I hope you enjoy it. I will, I'm sure. I'm looking forward to start reading it. And thank you again. You're very welcome. It's been very nice talking to you. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you'll be notified when the next one is posted. Please rate this podcast and share it with your friends. Thank you for listening and remember, relationships don't exist. Relating does. Until next time. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.